So we're back for part two of our Comic-Con walk-around experience. I'm Bill Field, and here's my buddy, Alex Grand, here in San Diego. And we're ready to keep walking and keep talking. Ladies and gents, yes, we're here again for one of the wonderful San Diego Con live podcasts. While we're taping it live anyway, for you to hear later. And we've got one of my best friends and the leader of the Kirby Museum. Wow. Now that sounds impressive. It's the one and only Rand Hoppy. Rand, how are you, buddy? Doing good, Bill. Having a great time. Fantastic. First off, I'd like to ask you what the mission statement of the Kirby Museum is, how it came to be, and uh, what your part in it is. We're basically here to educate the world about Jack Kirby, his his life and his career, and, and, and try to you know, throw some light on the world of the comic book cartoonist. I had the idea for the museum in around 2003. At the time, I was uh, hosting online comic book discussion groups, like email groups, and uh, I was helping John Morrow with the uh, his website. In my real life, I'd had a number of clients that were small nonprofits, and I just was like, you know, Jack Kirby should have a small nonprofit. And so I, I reached out to John Morrow, who put me in contact with Lisa Kirby, Jack's daughter, who runs the estate, we decided to found the museum. So we've been going ever since. We have a very, 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 very small collection of original art, but a significant collection of archival quality scans of original art. We also have the uh, scans of the Kirby family's pencil photocopies, the photocopies that Jack and Roz had took of, of Jack's artwork after he finished it, before he sent it out. Now, will you eventually release some of these things in trade paperbacks or, or some way that the fans can have ready availability to it? One project that we had, we, we worked with my, my colleague Tom Kraft, pulled together a book of the first issues of OMAC, Commandy, and the Demon, and published that with IDW called Kirby Pencils and Inks. What that was was a book that you could, see. on the left-hand side, you would see a a print of Kirby's pencil photocopy, the, the photocopy of Kirby's pencil art. And on the right-hand side, you would see a, a, a print of uh, Mike Royer's, the original art after Mike Royer was done with it. So for those, those first three issues, you could, you could compare and contrast, like basically see how wonderful Mike Royer inked and lettered what Jack sent to him. So that, that was our first real like, effort in publishing and working with, with getting the photocopies out. To you know the the public at large, and most recently you have a project you've worked on the Sky Masters collection, which is Kirby with Wally Wood. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, that's a, a dream project of Ferran Delgado in in Spain, and he is a, a, just a really great designer and letterer. He's currently working with Eric Larson on the Savage Dragon, but I've known Ferran for a really long time, and it, it is his dream project. He pulled it together. We had some scans of Skymaster's artwork, so we were happy to help him out with that. And then um, I also helped him kind of edit and copy edit his uh, English. So there was a Spanish version first, and then he personally translated it into English, and then I, I smoothed it out for him. Can you tell us briefly a little about Skymasters for the people that don't know what it was? Because it is kind of a rarity amongst the history of Kirby. Well, what happened in the, in the 50s when the, the comic book industry kind of fell apart after the Frederick Wortham uh, seduction of the innocent book and the Senate hearing um, about juvenile delinquency in comics, 
Kirby was, was scrambling to find work, and he one of the things that he did was he pulled together a number of pitches for newspaper comic strips rather than comic books. Through uh, connection at DC Comics, the, the editor there that he was working with on the challenges of the unknown made him a connection with a newspaper syndicate that was looking for a space strip because of the Sput- it was the Sputnik era, and uh, they wanted a space strip that was a little more science-based, not like Flash Gordon monster stuff, but you know, just kind of a straight science strip. They pulled it together, and Kirby had uh, Wally Wood in there, and these two writers, the Wood brothers. So there's Wally Wood, the inker, and then there's Bob and Dave Wood, the writers. It got out into the newspapers and everything. Unfortunately, the, the relationship with the editor at DC kind of fell apart, and there were there was a, it actually ended up being a lawsuit about whether that editor was to Jack Schiff was this guy's name, whether he was going to continue to receive kind of a royal, an ongoing finder's fee or royalty for having, you know, made, made that connection for the strip. So, and the way that the business model was set up, that it just ended up that Kirby was working too hard, not making enough money on it. So add that to the legal issue. And uh, after, I think, a year and a half, I, or, I'm sorry, I don't remember how long it ran, but it fell apart. And But it is pertinent to today because he was a member of the... It was the Space Force. How amazing is that? Jack saw this 50 years before it would actually happen. And I, I want to now ask Alex Grant if he has any questions for you. So Jack shifts, as in essence, blackballing Kirby from D.C. at the time. Do you feel like that, if that had not happened, then his co-Christians at Marvel would probably not have happened and there would be no Marvel Universe? I think that's definitely what happened, that the falling out with Jack Schiff, who was one of the major editors at, at DC or National, as the guys called it back then, that falling out basically caused Kirby to not get any more work at, at National. And he caused him to go out and look for other work, which is why he drew the last days of Pompeii at, at Classics Illustrated for Gilberton, a company he really disliked working for. I think there might have been a few other newspaper strips out there. But yeah, it, it, it basically ended up with, with Kirby... Going back to, to Martin Goodman and Stan Lee, which he really didn't want to do. It was kind of, you know, national DC was, was a top tier publisher and, and Martin Goodman and, and Stan Lee were kind of like the bottom rung because all they did was trend mongering. Even though, though he only had, because of the falling out of the, of the comic book industry, they were only able to publish eight comic books a month, but still they were just, it was just all about trend stuff. So if something was popular, they would, they would put out, you know, more of that. Kirby, ended up there after the success of the Challengers of the Unknown, because it was doing pretty well, and it lasted after Kirby left, along with stuff like The Flash and the Justice League and the work that Joe Simon, that Jack Kirby helped him with at, at Archie with the, the heroes. Kirby basically pushed them to, to consider doing heroes. And I, if Kirby hadn't ended up at Martin Goodman, I, I don't know what would have happened. The, the, he, he probably would have had the same ideas for the heroes, but... Having it be under Mort Weisinger or Jack, probably Jack Schiff, who knows whether they, whether, how well it would have happened and it would have been very different because, you know, Stan took the lead from the EC fan culture that, that East, the EC comics in the, in the early fifties created and kind of made the club of, of the Marvel, Marvel universe. So you really felt like you belonged to something, which is why the song is like, you belong, we belong, you know. And what really, really happened was that they, 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 they struck pay dirt because the baby boomers were just becoming teenagers. So what the, when the Marvel comics came out, 
suddenly it was like the the DC comics because of the comics code all the all the superheroes were very much like fairy tales you know supergirl had a, a centaur for a boyfriend and you know there were imps and magical stuff going on but the marvel comics kind of catered to an older audience but it was really more like early teenagers but then they would talk stand in in the in the editorial comments would talk about how they have readers in in colleges because the college kids did love the hulk I think the Hulk might have been number one in, in, at the co- with the college kids. So you know, it's like that, there's that thing where um, there's Seventeen magazine for for girls, but really they know that the age that they're catering to are fifteen year olds. It's that they don't cater to seventeen year olds. It's an aspirational thing for for the girls, and that's I think how Marvel Marvel Comics was that they they tapped into like the the t- the early teenagers, but. Stan would give them like, yeah, we use big words and we're read right on college campuses to make the kids kind of, you know, think that they're like more sophisticated because they're reading Marvel comics. Do you feel that Jack Shiv should get a finder's fee for the Marvel co-creations? I'm just joking, Rand. You know that. <laughs> well, another thing that Marvel did, I think, that, that spoke to uh, Kirby's art was how conversational the writing was, how it sounded, the characters actually sounded more real and grounded in a lot of ways than DC did at the time. Because oh, without a doubt, yeah. I mean, there was definitely the way that the, the DC stories were written and the editorial policy of DC was very writerly, the full script, the, the you know, there was lots of <laughs> captions and, you know, the heroes were always very heroic and they were pretty bland. But what happened at Marvel, because Stan was kind of, you know, he loved like teen gag humor you know, modeling with Millie, and he did those those hilarious magazines with the um, where he would put you know gag captions on monster movie stills. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the kind of snappy, funny stuff that that Stanley really, I think he really liked doing that. So you know, he was doing that to to Kirby's stories and making it more more snappy. The other thing about Marvel, though, with with, with as far as Kirby was that Kirby. Starting in the 40s with the kid gangs, you know, uh, the, the, the teen allies and the boy commandos and the newsboy legion. I mean, those were all bickering kids, right? They were always like, you know, saying, hey, what are we doing? What are we doing that for? You know, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, then the Marvel comics came along and it was like bickering adults. So there, there was like a trend of, of Kirby doing bickering, you know, bickering heroes. Whereas DC was always like, hello, friend. Yes, let's go and save the universe. You know, why you're Batman. I'm Superman. Hello. You know, there were, <laughs> wasn't there ever any bickering in, 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 at the DC comics. Yeah, no, exactly. But it's funny how it evolved through both the things that Kirby did and the things Lee did. It's like they stuck it in a blender and the best stuff came out. Wouldn't you say? I agree. But let's, let's, I'll also just mention the, that, you know, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon invented romance comics. And I, and, and as far as I'm concerned, Jack and Joe, other, uh, in addition to being, you know, taking advantage of the GI Bill and the FHA loans, romance comics got them their houses in the suburbs because they made a lot of money and produced a lot of romance comics. What was the interesting thing about Marvel Comics in the 60s? Interpersonal dramatic stuff. You know, which is romance. You know, so, no, Namor loves Sue. Sue's running away. You know, all, all, all that kind of romantic stuff. That was a lot. Of, so, you know, there's a, a history of Kirby doing that stuff, too. I don't even think Stan Lee liked heroes or science fiction or adventure until the Marvel comic stuff came along that Jack Kirby convinced him to do. But, but he sure had a fun time doing it once he got into the groove, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I guess our time... Alas, is at a close, and and with great power, you know, 
comes a great responsibility. Yeah. I wanted to say something snappier than that, <laughs> but might as well end with what Stan said, right? <laughs> yeah. So, Rand, it's yeah. been an extreme pleasure. Can you give us a web address? Sure. Yeah. I mean, if you if you put Jack Kirby in on on almost any search engine, where at least one number one or number two hit KirbyMuseum.org, Jack Kirby Museum on Twitter or Instagram, or maybe it doesn't have Jack in it. Maybe it's Kirby Museum. But we're we're out there. We're around. Well, we want to thank you for keeping the king alive, and thank you for all the wonderful things you do at the Kirby Museum. And thanks again, and we're on to our next interview, folks. We have come upon one of my favorite artists, and I think Alex will agree with me, and it's the great Mark Texiera. Mark, it's a it's an honor to have you, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes, so I'm here with Vanguard. I have also another table back by uh, Artist Alley. I really like being over here. I think this is where all the artists... Bill Sienkiewicz, Neil Adams, all the greats are hanging out here. So uh, I'm kind of torn. I think I'll be here next year. We've been talking to you a little bit before the interview, but we were talking about our our great passion for the great classic artists like uh, Hal Foster, like uh, uh, after him, Wally Wood. And and then we get to you a few few years later. I'm the the copper age and the silver age, and then there's the aluminum foil age. What are we like? uh are we microwave age? We're in the microwave, microwave, yes. Would you tell our fans out yes, there yes, and yes. listeners, would yes. you tell them a little bit about yourself and where you came from okay. to get the okay. comics? Okay, okay, okay. Oh, well, I'm born in the, well, born in Manhattan, upper Manhattan, like near Spanish Harlem, raised in the Bronx. My father was a janitor, and so that scared me into doing anything but being under sinks and toilets. And I loved comics. And one of my first memories of comics. Now, we were so poor on, on welfare in, in New York that there was this comic. Not a comic book. We didn't have comic book stores in the 70s. But we had a store that sold cigarettes. And they had used comic books for five cents. And they were 25 back then. So that's why I picked up my first Spider-Man and the death of Gwen. And like years later, all these boxes, all these books were in boxes. So I kept flipping through these. And for a quarter, I can get five instead of buying a new one for 25 cents. So that got me in my addiction to comics. After that, at the age of 14, somewhere around seventh grade, I had a, a bunch of buddies in, in school. We discussed who certain artists were, and, and we would literally hide the names and go, whose artwork is this? And I would go, uh, and we had to learn Basema's name, Kirby's name, Barry Smith, all these artists, other artists. like I didn't like Joe Kubert at first when I saw his work because it was on Tarzan, but then I learned how he came from a legacy of Hal Foster, and of course... Before him, I believe it was uh, Charles Dana Gibson at the 1800s, but we were discussing that earlier. But I'm such an illustrator lover, having been an illustrator a little bit on my own. I did a few articles for the New York Magazine and a few other smaller things, but comic books just took my interest because I love telling the stories. And now they're becoming movies. I just got my third credit in the Marvel movies. We created in 1990s and Marvel Knights, Black Panther's female assistants, the, the Dora Milaje. We didn't even know that they were going to end up in the movies. And one of the women is being played by The Walking Dead, Michonne. So I'm so happy that I she didn't exist till I came and created. And now I'm in the annals of Marvel Comics. And cinematic history. Marvel yeah. Cinematic. And that's yeah. amazing, isn't it? Yes, yes. And so now, Jimmy Pony, Jimmy. So, <laughs> now you throw me in. <laughs> Could you give him a wall of wall? And it's Jimmy Palmiotti is here. Jimmy, say hi to the I'm fans. checking the details. Jimmy, hello. Hey, how you doing? Thank you, Jimmy Palmiotti. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no vodka at the table yet. 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 So. 
Jimmy Palmiotti, amazing artist and amazing human being from what Mark Texier just said. All was 90 degrees is up, not up. <laughs> we had a, I had to draw this panel like nine times and I drew the gun. Where was it? Instead of the, in this, I kept drawing it and doing it like this and then Jimmy, you just gave me this point up. This has to be in an upward fashion. Boom, the head goes off. This What's this? Jimmy Sam, uh, that's the next page that led to that page. I didn't sign them. What's that? I yeah, sign them to me, dude. What the hell? And he, Mark Texera and I went to high school together, the High School of Art and Design in, in Manhattan. And Mark was one of the uh, guys that would come in in the morning, like uh, 7 in the morning. They had a painting class. It would be two hours before each day. They would go downstairs and they would paint in the building. And Mark would go every morning down there and paint these amazing, like, photorealistic scenes of people and on the street, people on benches, cops, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it was very few people that were that devoted. You know, think about your own high school, right? If somebody tell you come in too early, two hours early to do something, you don't want to hear it. And Mark would come all the way from the Bronx to Manhattan, come in two hours early, paint, paint, paint. Nine o'clock comes, bang, run upstairs and do all his classes. Yeah, and yeah. So uh, it showed like he was one of the guys when I when I was in high school that was like this guy is going to be huge one day because look at the drive, look at the talent. And then we don't know what happened then. And that's, that's what, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, no, you know, so, so much promise. We don't know what happened. Uh, no, the internet destroyed him. No, no, but any, so when I was working in advertising and I wanted to get into doing comics and this was, I was 30 years old, 28, 29, 30 around there. And Mark was actually drawing Punisher and Ghost Rider at the same time monthly. Yes, yes. He was drawing two monthly books. My wife is so mad at and so how I got into Marvel and how I got into the business, Mark said, could you please come and give me a hand doing backgrounds and helping me with the pages? So I used to say, sure, if I can go up to Marvel Comics and work on them, because I just wanted to get in the offices to maybe pick up work. And Mark and I would work all through the night. We'd eat donuts and drink soda, and it was like disgusting. But we needed the energy to stay up. Donuts, call them monkeys' assholes. <laughs> you know, those chocolate donuts look like giant monkeys' assholes. But anyway, we would we would eat those, and we would like go on pure sugar, and we was getting these two books What's in a like month, like boom, morning, boom, boom. In the morning, yeah, it was just. Our classic runs of the characters, and then years later, when Joe Casada and I did Marvel Knights. We got Black Panther as one of the characters, and I said, Tex has got to draw it. And actually, Tex not only drew it, but he painted it. But, Jimmy, you forgot. Like, as soon as you were helping me, Don Daly came by, and I introduced him, and then he started working with Don Daly, and then it was new history. Yeah, I knew. I, I, I know how to network and how to get in there. And, and basically, comics was basically, are you decent? Yes. Can you get it in on time? Well, yes. And editors are genetically lazy people, so they don't want to do a lot of work. They want it to come in and be done. So they can, you know, have some time off or get on to the next book. So what I learned from advertising is the more you get done and make their job easier, the more they want to hire you. And that's pretty much how I got a lot of my work. But Mark was the guy that brought me in. He's still a mega talent. I mean, it's just a career is like a roller coaster. And we're still on the roller coaster. Yes, love it, love it, love it. But we're on the tracks. I always say people like it's a roller coaster. I'm like, no, it's we're on the tracks, though. Yeah, I started 1980. You started with Neil Adams too, right? You yeah, worked for well, Neil. Late in 88. 88. Yeah, I was with uh, Vince Coletta and Joe Orlando. They sent me over from Marvel. They said John Romita Senior says, "Look, kid, at 19, we don't print anybody who hasn't been published. So go over to DC Comics. Here's Vince and uh, Joe Orlando's number." So I went over there, and they started giving me work in House of Mysteries and Tales of Terror, and and then I led to He Man and then the Warlord and and then Hex, and then I went to Marvel. And funny thing, so Frank Vizetta. 
we went up to Frank Fazetta's yes. house and yes. Mark brought his paintings. And Fazetta said it was one of the most impressive painters he's ever seen capturing movement, which was Frank's thing, right? The movement in the thing. And he, he, Mark's head almost exploded when Frank was complimenting him. But I've never seen Frank compliment somebody like he did Mark's uh, painting abilities, which is, and it's a shame where he is now. Like I said, it's numb. Well, I mean, to see Frank Fazetta like flipping through your paintings, how cool was that? Because that was like your, you know, the god of, of uh, everything, of painting there. From, from this entire floor in San Diego, come. Sincerely blown away. The history of Mark Texera. I know a lot more, but I don't want to say those stories. Great words from Jimmy Pagliotti, but yes. now. We want to we want to focus a little bit more on you, Mark, before we have to leave. Um, uh, I'd like to ask you real quick: What are you working on now? Oh. Tell us a little bit about the Looney Tunes crossover oh. book. Yes. Maybe? Well, with, after Jimmy's wonderful intro into this wonderful world, I'm working with Frank Thierry now in another Warner Brothers DC crossover: Yogi Bear versus Deathstroke. Because Hanna Barbera or Warner Brothers owns DC Comics. Uh, Warner Brothers also owns Hanna Barbera, so they're doing the crossovers in the comics. Unfortunately, this yogi is not your lovable yogi. This is not a hat-wearing, collar-dressed bear. This is a demon bear that stands about 15 feet high, and somehow it somehow it abducts a woman or something, and the ranger has to call in Deathstroke to save this woman from the yogi. That's amazing. So that's what I'm about to start working on once after I sense any kind. Yeah, 64 page Die Hard. That killed me. It was done about two weeks ago. It's finished finally. And it's the 30th anniversary of Die Hard and written again by Frank Thierry, a buddy of mine, where I haven't seen the entire convention so far. It's been two days. Where is he? So that's what I've been working on. Yes. And Fleer Cars for Upper Deck, the Marvel series. Only card collectors know about that. And then there's lots of in-betweens, you know. And we're representing on Vanguard here. We're standing under their booth. There's some talk about a second Vanguard art collection. Oh, please. Yes. With my name on it, I hope. so. A second Vanguard Texiera art collection. Thank you. Well, Mark, we want to thank you. Alex and I would like to thank you so much for this great interview. And we hope you have a wonderful con. Thank you, guys. And hopefully see you next year. You bet. Mahalo, my brothers. All right. So we're here at San Diego Comic-Con 2018. This is Alex Grant, and I'm here with Jim Thompson. Hello. Hi, everybody. And we're talking to Nikki Wheeler-Nicholson, comic book historian who recently uh, released a book on her grandfather, the creator of DC Comics back in 1934, the major Malcolm Wheeler-Nicholson. Nikki, how are you doing today? Great. I'm a little overwhelmed. It's been exciting. It's been a really eventful few days for you here because with the release of the book and there's a lot of fanfare around it why don't you tell people what went into creating this book and what has this book achieved as far as a historical note in comic book history well i started researching my grandfather's history and creative life about 20 years ago but i really earnestly got started on this particular kind of book about 10 years ago so it's been quite a journey there have been a lot of twists and turns but i think the end product is really important because instead of just a straight biography the book contains rare and scarcely seen reprints of stories from the early days so i think that's one of the things that's important because most fans have not seen those comics and a lot of people would credit your grandfather, the first guy that really pushed new material in comic books instead of just reprinting newspaper strips, which was what was going on before him. What do you think uh, in his mind and you being related to him and understanding about him, what led him to want to push new material that other publishers weren't doing? 
Well, he was a creative person himself, and that's something that's really important for people to know about. The other people who were involved in the early publishing all started out in pulps and printing as salesmen or publishers of pulps, that kind of thing. But he was a writer. And he also was interested in the graphic form from the time he was very young. The earliest drawings he actually drew, and the earliest drawings I have of him are in his 1911 yearbook. And in 1926, 27, he had a newspaper syndicate called Wheeler, Nichols, and Inc. And in that, he promoted graphic strips of things like The Three Musketeers, Walter Scott's novels, Edgar Allan Poe. So he was very early on interested in this idea of the graphic representation. And I think, you know, just the, he saw the reprints on the newsstands and I, I think he just thought it was time for something original because that, as a creator, he's always thinking about creativity. I have a question, Nikki. Up until looking at your book and listening to your talk the other day, I always thought of women artists as being something from Fiction House primarily. And I was amazed by the number of women artists that are represented in your book. Could you talk about that for a minute? Well, there were two prominent women. One is Emma McKean that Trina Robbins talks about in her wonderful book, Pretty in Ink. Myrna Gamble. Myrna Gamble is a very interesting artist. And like a lot of the women, early women pioneer artists, there's not much information about them. But what I do know about Myrna Gamble is that she was married to John Linda Mayer, who is also an artist. She illustrated one of the classic novels that was in the comics. And she was there for the whole time that uh, my grandfather owned the magazines. I also noticed that some of the panel constructions are really surprising in the book, that this is not your, your standard grid things, that it's really innovative and impressive for such an early stage. Yeah, I I think that's part of, of what's exciting about seeing these early comics that people have not seen. They don't realize how much innovation happened right from the beginning. Those wonderful comics of Leo O'Malius, particularly, I just love the long panels that show someone dangling from a, a roof and, and the wonderful panels that have a flight in them with airplanes and there are all kinds of sizes and shapes that give you the sense of what of the action itself instead of just the straightforward panel. So I think that's also something that people who are interested in this should be aware of that these innovations happen at the very beginning under my grandfather. Yes, I think there's a misimpression that comics were one thing and then Will Eisner did something that nobody else did and that's the end of it. And it's, com- comic history is much more complicated than that in terms of form. Well, Will Eisner came after my grandfather. I love the image of that area in New York City. I mean, just think about it. It was in the middle of the Depression, and all of a sudden, my grandfather starts this comics magazine, and these guys who are looking for work hear about it, and they all show up with their artwork, and people are submitting things to him, like Siegel and Schuster. 
and you know in that small area so Harry Chesler I'm not sure of the exact date some people say 1939 so I'm not sure but right around in that period well that was you know after my grandfather started so Eisner and Chesler came after that 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 he inspired all this activity and that's what I want people to recognize is that that this was an innovative exciting thing that inspired a lot of people that came after one last question for me when I was listening to you talk yesterday I like the way you framed it not as a sad story or as a tragedy but just as something that happens business is business and the way you you saw what what happened with your grandfather in a in a not a negative way, that, as some people might take it. Well, I, you know, although we're talking about comics, and <laughs> it's easy to make characters into cartoons, villains, and heroes, uh, we're talking about real people here. And I think my grandfather's story is much more interesting if you see the motivations behind people like Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz. What motivated them towards what they did? Then it becomes a deeper richer, much more accurate picture of what happened. And we talked about this last night, is sometimes comic book fans really want to 100% split things into 100% hero, 100% villain, but you add a particular humanity in these stories, and I think as a descendant of him, I think from what I understand, I think he'd be really proud of what you did. I hope so. I hope so. (laughs) Thank you so much. We have a lot to thank to the major, and we have a lot to thank for you for bringing this knowledge of what he provided. A lot of Comic-Con in general would not be possible if it wasn't for what he did. We're eternally grateful. We would not be here without him. Thank you for letting us know that. This makes me so emotional. (laughs) Thanks, Alex. So exploring more of San Diego Comic-Con 2018, we're actually talking to Scott Robinson. I'm here with Jim Thompson. Scott is leader of International Global Comics Movement. He's researching and databasing literally hundreds to thousands of international comics that have foreign art of American superheroes that we know and love here, but in a whole other way, characters in other countries. Scott, tell us more about that. The social media groups that I run are called Globo Comico, and what I'm trying to do is document the uh, hundred areas of the world of published American comics and their international editions. And I'm trying to do this as accurately as possible, like the language and script that these uh, characters are published in, uh, to, to do that accurately, not to just call it a German Spider-Man 129, but really try to document it the way the, the issues were published in those countries. Vast differences with these comics from the American versions. You know, they're, they're, they're European versions, for example, they, most of them don't have ads in the issues. There's two or three stories in an issue. They're square bound. There's all kinds of color variances on the covers. One of the things that interests me the most is the characters and how they're sort of perceived. You know, a lot of the titles of the characters, sometimes the names change around the world. Like, for example, in Norway, Batman is Linvingen, which means lightning wing. And Lebanon, Superman was never Clark Kent. His identity was, they gave him an Arabic identity. An Arab identity is uh, Nabil Fazi, the better fit into local context there. There's all kinds of things. In Mexico, uh, the publisher, La Prensa, they never killed Gwen Stacy. They didn't publish that issue. Instead, they kept her alive, and she married Peter Parker. So then there began this new Spider-Man canon in Mexico, 
for about 45 issues of original stories and, and art. So there's, there's things like that all over the world that's unknown, and I'm trying to, to uh, document it, you know. Something I noticed, Mike DeLisa is in our group, and he's shown me some of these South American Spider-Man issues, and it looks like there's almost like an alternate universe where Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy kind of got married. What's interesting is the proportions on Gwen Stacy. There was a little more, I guess the word is booty, than I've seen in the American comics. Have you noticed that? Well, it's hard not to. Uh, the the booty call is uh, probably a cultural thing, you know, with uh, with Latin America that women are, are are in a sort of chauvinistic way are depicted that way in comics typically, and you can identify a lot of the uh, original stories that uh, publishers like Mac Division, Historietas, and La Prensa have done with characters like Spider Man as Hombre Araña and Iron Fist or Puño de Cero. Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, because they often, the covers of this, the particular issues that have the original stories will have women depicted in that way on them. So you, you can tell, oh, that's an original one. Give me, send me that one. You know? I was thinking of where, because of distribution problems, they have occasionally had to have local artists step in and do the material. I'm thinking specifically of Spiro magazine and how with the Superman reprints of the comic strip, they actually had French Belgium artists fill in for some of those and then come back after the, after the war. Do you look into those kinds of things? Yes, I do. That particular issue I'm not familiar with, but I'm more familiar with the redrawn covers of the editions of Artis from Spain. And I do know that there, the issue was that the local law, a la- sort of a labor law, that when a publisher was publishing material that was exclusively, uh, inter- you know, foreign, it was from America, it was already packaged, that the- it would basically impact the local work. So they restricted the companies from putting out at least the covers. You know, some of the covers had to be redrawn. And that's the case in many countries where you find covers are redrawn where the work is still licensed. And I think it has to do with local labor to keep the artists working. Uh, in other cases, like Indonesia, where the, the complete comic is redrawn, I think it's bootleg publishing, and it has to do with the fact that they never got the original proofs to work from, and it was easier to hire somebody locally to just copy the comic and draw it. That's why I think you see that in so many cases. In the ones I'm thinking of, what was interesting was that because they had been publishing the American comics, they tried to emulate and make it look just like Schuster, but it wasn't. Well, yeah, there's, there's, uh, I have this Indonesian Strenko, Captain America, and Captain America and Hulk on the cover, and they, they do try to get it close. It's, you know, you, because you're familiar with it, you notice a subtle difference, but it, you can get fooled at first. Now, another, you mentioned postal rates and, and issues with that. I, I do know in Mexico, publishers like La Prensa, to get around the cost of having so many titles out, they would print a title like El Sorprendente Hombre Araña, which is a Spider-Man series. And then the next issue, instead of being a subsequent Spider-Man story, it would be The Avengers. But the title of the comic would still be Spider-Man. And then they come back an issue later and continue with a Spider-Man. And then they do another. So they would put two or three series in one comic book title to avoid the postal rates. Uh. So what areas of the world or what countries don't do this, that don't put in the American product or the American superheroes? Are there areas that just where it's a blank zone? Where there's no comics? Or no, no American superheroes translated or reproduced? Oh yeah, there's, there's areas of the world that, you know, 
15 or 20 at least where I, I can't find any American comics whatsoever. They're all indigenous comics, and that would be like Lithuania. They do trendy kinds of graphic novels that are popular now with people who aren't into the big you know, corporate kinds of comic books that are made in America. Laos is another one where comics are made in very, very small, to a small degree, but for educational purposes like teaching kids about you know, dental health, things like that. Um, there are a number of other places, too, where the comics are uh, original. They're not uh, uh, from America. They're also much harder for me to get, <laughs> so I don't have examples from There's about 10 areas of the world I don't yet have anything from, but I'm working on it. And what is it about the Dutch and Donald Duck? Enders and? <laughs> I, I think that's Swedish there. I don't know what you mean. Donald Duck is insanely popular in, in Holland. And, in fact, there's a Christmas special that is as important to them as It's a Wonderful Life is to us, the ratings on it every year. And Donald Duck is still one of the top-selling comics in Holland. Well, I'm, uh, I have to say immediately that I'm flattered that you think I'd know that. But I, I do know that some things that are perceived as, like, children's literature here, like Disney, for example, are immensely popular with adult readers in parts of Europe. And I think it might have to do with the absence of some of the iconic characters like Batman or Superman that didn't take hold there, but this stuff did. So when they see it you know, later in life, I think they have the same experience that we have. It, it takes you back to your youth and with the same kind of value and with how your memory works. I do also know that in certain parts of Scandinavia, some of the uh, Disney stories of Donald Duck were original. They were published there, and then they were later came to America in, uh, in sort of translated versions. So... It speaks to the popularity of those iconic characters that, you know, all over the world, like Superman or Batman and Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck. And, you know, it's interesting you bring up Superman. I was looking over the term graphic novel, and one of the things a lot of fans don't know is that in South America they were using the term novelas graficas, and there was a Superman comic I saw from there where they actually have a beautiful, although the inside was like Wayne Boring Art American, but the cover was originally done there with an artist over there. You know, how, Do you feel that in the international presence that Americans in general just have a lot to learn from the history of uh, international comics? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, like I said, there's a hundred areas of the world that have comics, and this uh, original covers are, is very common internationally. You can find, I mean, if, if you like variant covers and you want to collect, these are, are true variants. This is before the, the idea ever existed in America, they were being done internationally. They weren't done for any kind of snide marketing purpose, you know, like it might be perceived today. So, I mean, that's always a prize when I can find original cover art, you know, with these issues. That's great. The variant cover theme, that's really interesting. That actually makes me look at it in a whole other way now. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Scott. This has been a wonderful segment here at San Diego Comic-Con 2018. Any parting words? Just really uh, happy to, to know you guys. I think what you're doing with comic book history is uh, is really academically sound and very uh, relevant and, and interesting. I encourage you to keep doing it. Well, right back at you, Scott. Thank you so much, and have a wonderful rest of your con. We had the best time here at Comic-Con, and you got the best of our comic historian's take on it. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you'll come back for plenty more right here on the Comic Book Historian Podcast. I'm Bill Field, and we're saying... Aloha! Aloha.